whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. First of all, we need to thank a bunch of people for donating to our little fundraiser. We set a $6,000 goal and we just passed the halfway point. That's awesome. Uh, And we need to thank Isle of Books and Isle of Books and Books and um, Butte and Bozeman. Medley and Susan have been incredibly supportive and they are our sponsors. Thank you. Thanks to them. Yes, absolutely. We have two really interesting books to talk about this time. The first is Ryan Bussey from Kalispell wrote a book called Gunfight, which is all over the internet. It's going to be a bestseller. Yeah, it sure looks like it. His first book, and it's an inside look at the gun industry. He was a top executive for a company called Kimber and became completely disillusioned. So it's really... Uh, Pretty eye-opening. Yes, it is, yeah. And we decided to pair this one up with one of my very favorite books about Montana from the past called We Pointed Them North by Teddy Blue Abbott. Also one of my favorites. Yeah. It's not your your usual cowboy yarn. It sure isn't. Of course, that's one of the best things about it. I first heard about this book, I don't know how you found out about it, but Ed Kamek told me about this book a long time ago and I picked it up and man, it just really pulls you in. Um, You know, I read it because I, I'm trying to remember where I heard this, but somebody, some critic once said there were three great cowboy narratives. It might've been Larry McMurtry. Mm. And one of them was, we pointed them North. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's also an interesting story. The woman that uh, helped him bring this into the world, Helena, uh, Helen Huntington Smith, isn't that her name? Yeah, I think you had it right the first time, Helena. Helena. Maybe it's Helena. We'll have to call her and ask her. Um, <laughs> well, she she was a writer also, and um, I mean, I think she wrote a novel too, but, but she met him and loved his stories and thought he should really put these out there. Yeah, and it's basically just him telling her the story. It's I think she just dictated whatever he said. It's not like a narrative, typical narrative. It's just him telling stories, which is right. One but of, she's but she says somewhere he really had a way with words, and he was a natural storyteller. And it, yeah, I forget how she puts it, but it didn't need that much editing or whatever. right. Yeah, that's part of the charm of it is that it just feels like you're sitting there listening to him tell these yarns and he's such a unique character i mean for one thing you know he was a he was a hardcore cowboy i mean he was on cattle drives from texas to montana from the age of 14 right right but um he's just so atypical like he uh i mean in some ways he's completely typical he likes to drink he likes to visit whorehouses and all that but he has such a distinct uh, view of all of it. Like he kind of sees through it all and eventually settles down, marries uh, Granville Stewart's daughter, who's half Indian because Granville Stewart made it, married a native woman. And once he settled down, I mean, he sounded like he, ha- he lived a pretty straight life as far as um, most people from that generation. Right. And like a lot of those, you know, Granville Stewart and some of those others, he was pretty, pretty intelligent and I think well-read. Yeah. Right. 
Um, but one of the things I love about him is how he sort of explodes the whole myth of the cowboy. Yes. And there's one passage I really want to read because it's one of my favorite uh, sections of this book. Um, whenever I see one of those posters or a meme on Facebook that, you know, that shows the cowboy kneeling by the cross or, mm. you know, the cowboy way and it's guided by God or something. <laughs> um, I love what he says here. This is uh, wild times in the 70s. His death, he's talking about a little kid that he knew who died. And he says, his death was what made an infidel of me. Mm. I asked my mother if God could have kept him from dying. And she said, yes, God was all powerful and could have prevented it if he had wished. So I said, I'll never go in one of your damn churches again. <laughs> and I never have. The family stuffed me full of all that religious bull when I was a kid, but I never had any more use for it after I was growed. And in that, I was like the rest of the cowpunchers. 90% mm. of them were infidels. The life they led had a lot to do with that. After you come in contact with nature, you get all that stuff knocked out of you, praying to God for aid, divine providence, and so on, because it don't work. Mm. That's fabulous. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that he says, you know, most of the cowboys were like that, I think really uh, explodes that myth, which persists today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he he explodes so much of the romanticism of that life. And also uh, yeah, also the way people viewed Indians. Yes. Yeah, he's totally his take on that is absolutely amazing. His empathy for them and right. like the, how many times he stood up to people who were treating him like shit. It's really fascinating that he had that foresight um and you know like again like you said it, it, it's not like he was the only one either um, right yeah this whole idea that everybody was on the same page back then is it's just not true i i lo love that you read that passage there and one of my favorite passages kind of also shows the tender side of him yeah um, there's a there's this incredible story he tells about sitting with a guy, one of his fellow cowboys for like a week while this young guy was dying and there was no family around. So nobody was there to take care of this guy. And Teddy sat with him for days and, you know, had people bringing food to him so he didn't have to leave this, this guy's side. Yeah. And then just, you know, bawled his eyes out when he cried. That's totally imagine a scene like that from one of john ford's movies you know, like you know you, just, you don't see that but i think that was just uh, a lot more you know this whole idea of the stoic cowboys just such a bunch of shit <laughs> um well don't sugarcoat it tell us how you feel <laughs> um you know it i agree with you and it, it reminds me of a great set of essays that larry mcmurtry wrote about Texas called In a Narrow Grave. Mm. And the title comes from an old cowboy song called uh, Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie. It's a great song. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing is this cowboy's dying and he's just pleading with his friends, you know, please don't bury me on the prairie. I want to be buried by my folks back home, yada, yada. And verse after verse of, uh, please, you know, bury me not on the lone prairie. Mm. And then that ends with the cowboy saying, we, we heeded not his dying prayer. In, in a narrow grave, six by three, we buried him on the lone <laughs> And, you know, uh, part of it, I think, is just lack of a belief in an afterlife, maybe, like uh, mm. Teddy Blue is saying. But also, I think, pragmatic. It's like, what else are they going to do? Yeah, right. You want to drag a corpse around for weeks. <laughs> but I just love the the sentiment there that, you know, they're... He's pleading, don't do this. And then they're like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, he also, I like the fact that even though he definitely engaged in the whole uh, prostitute culture and all that, his respect for women is also really, uh, it really comes through uh, after he settles down and takes and a it's anachronistic look. too, right? Yeah, yeah like totally. Yeah. Plus his view of guns too. I mean, he, this whole... Like he, he talks about this whole notion that everyone was carrying two pistols around was such a, a bunch of lies. I mean, 
he said nobody did that it was it was a and i don't know if you remember the the scene where he talks about uh, an old cowboy gave him his first gun when he was 12 or 13 mm. and he and he told him he said now don't load this up with cartridges um it's old and worn out it'll it can hurt <laughs> go <you."> off <laughs> yeah so he, he basically gave it to him as kind of a toy mm. and uh teddy blue says uh his brother got a hold of it, his little brother, and uh, he he put bullets in it and fired it and almost blew his hand off. <laughs> right, right. His remember dad, that. remember that? His dad yeah. was so mad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they were thinking gun safety even then. You know, I read this book every couple of years because I love it so much. He just has such an engaging voice and and perspective that it's it's really fun. Yeah, it's a great narrative, and he is a great storyteller, and he does have really colorful turns of phrase and just a prodigious memory. Yeah, right, that too. He really takes, I mean, he really takes you into that life in a way that uh, most of the, like, the, uh, the complete opposite of the Virginian, you know, this is the real right. deal. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to remember, was, wasn't he born in England? I think so. I think so. Didn't he say that early on? Or maybe one of his parents was. Um, yeah, but it could have been him too. I can't remember for sure. If he if he was, he came over pretty young. Yeah, I just like you said, he was only fourteen when he first went on a cattle drive. Nope. He says people. This is how he starts. People who know me often talk as though I was from Texas. That is not correct. I was born at Cranwich Hall, Cranwich County of Norfolk, England. Wow. Sixty. That's fascinating. I came, to I came to Montana with a herd of Texas cattle in 1883. Mm, that's so cool. Yeah, and of course, that's a typical story of that time. So in, in so many ways, he was a typical cowboy. And I, I love the way that he tells us what that was really like. So to, to sort of parallel that with Ryan's story, you know, um, Ryan also, in some ways, typical gun guy, uh, loved grew up hunting, but there was always this niggling feeling that, um, you know, something wasn't quite right about what was going on in his industry once he got into the gun manufacturing. And I think the way he describes that sort of uh, incremental change in his attitude is really well conveyed in this book, Gunfight. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's interesting to hear somebody who has great respect for guns and and really gun culture and the yeah. the whole aesthetics of gun ownership and hunting. To talk to somebody with that deep an affection for it, get so cynical about the way that has been co-opted, you know, as he says in the book, by the, the right wing. We're here with Ryan Bussey. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Appreciate uh, chatting with you guys. And congratulations on their book. So could you uh, just give us a brief description of your attitude toward guns and how that uh, slowly came into conflict with your uh, the industry's overall attitudes? Well, I don't think that my attitude towards guns has... Um, shifted that much. Um, if anything, I've become a little more, um, I guess on the, on the sliding scale, I've become a little more pro-gun in that, um, my comfort level and acceptability with things just as the nation has evolved. Um, so has mine. Um, there was a time not so long ago in our history, um, fewer than two decades that the, that the nation was very uncomfortable with things such as concealed carry, um, guns, now the nation seems to be quite comfortable with that, given that almost every state has concealed carry pistols legal and many have permitless concealed carry. Um, my comfort level with those sorts of guns has um, evolved in um, towards, towards more acceptability, just as the nation's has. At the same time, I think what happened in my career and what has happened in the nation now is that there is a line in which responsibility has been thrown out the door and a, a slow, sensible evolution 
in guns and gun rights has been replaced with something that's now careening off the tracks. Um, that happened pretty quickly, not dissimilar from the way our politics in this nation seem to have careened off the tracks in the last few years. It, as the whole thing sort of bailed off the tracks like the, like the runaway train we're talking about here, it troubled me a lot. And so that's, that's sort of why I wrote the book. My, so I guess the, the simple question is my comfort level, my gun acceptability, my love of guns, using them with my boys and my dad and shooting and hunting and owning them and everything really hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The, the degree to which this thing has gone crazy has changed. So can I follow up with that and just say, could you summarize the thesis of your book in a sentence or two? Sure. Two things going on in the book. It's a, it's a memoir. It's my life and my family's life in the firearms industry. But the general thesis, the, the through line of the story is that the political radicalization that we now live within as a country was developed, perfected, and then handed off by the firearms industry to the political right. And so many of the things that we live under and are troubled now bubbled up and, and were perfected by the NRA and the firearms industry, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And why don't you give us a little brief summary of your, your career? Sure. I grew up on a very rural ranch and farm in Northwestern Kansas uh, and grew up with guns. Um, you know, I joke, but it's not far off that I grew up with a rifle in one hand and a shotgun in the other. I um, obtained my first job out of college was in the sporting goods industry for an optics company, made rifle scopes and binoculars, things like that in Colorado. Then I joined a very small fledgling firearms company, Kimber, in 1995, started as helped uh, along with the partners, started a sales and marketing office in Kalispell, Montana, of all places, um, even though the factory was not here and have been here in Kalispell since then. And we grew Kimber into one of the largest and most influential firearms companies in the country in those 25 years. And I was received a lot of accolades, was nominated for, you know, and was a finalist for the largest, most prestigious awards in the industry. And so have, or at least had quite a bit of street cred in the firearms industry for quite some time. I was vice president of sales. So ran worldwide sales for the entire company and sold millions of guns. Yeah. And you know, the, the way you described that ascension of your, your own career and then how it sort of ends up constantly colliding with uh, the political influence that you ran into, with, especially with the NRA, was really well done. So you, could you tell us a little bit more about how their influence just sort of slowly overtook the industry? Yeah, it, and it's often reported. I, I hear it. I've heard it reported on NPR many times that the NRA is just an extension of the firearms industry. And the, and the truth is, uh, it's exactly the opposite. Um, during my time, my career, which just, uh, I, I, re- I didn't retire, but I, I quit to write this book uh, just about a year ago. The NRA, for all practical purposes, ran the firearms industry. Nothing of import happened without either tacit or indirect approval from the NRA. And that, that political positions being developed. I could go on and on, but it, it may be debated by some, but it's very clear to those of us inside that really nothing of import happened without a nod of approval from the NRA. And oftentimes it was directed by the NRA. I want to follow up with that too, because it seems in the book, you also make the connection between the NRA and the Republican. Yeah. You know, the general point is, you know, when, when Trumpism and extremism and radicalization sort of enveloped this country in the last three to five years. I think we've all felt that. That really wasn't very shocking to me. I felt like I had lived inside that and had seen that coming for 10 or 15 years. And, mm. and the NRA, by going all in, the NRA advertises itself still as a bipartisan or a nonpartisan organization. I think we can see the, the obvious uh, joke in that statement and description. It's an extremely partisan, if not the most powerful partisan organization in our politics for the last 25 or 30 years. It decided that the way to build political power was to go all in with one political party, crank up and 
shut down all relief, all policy relief valves, demonize every person on the other side of the aisle, or even demonize those on the Republican side of the aisle who dared to even whisper words like compromise or kind things about people from the other party. Those are the politics that we see now on the political right that we saw through the Trump years, the 100% loyalty or 0% loyalty. Those were all developed by the NRA, and they first perfected those by going all in with the Republican Party and, and abandoning any pretense of being bipartisan. Yeah. So tell us, why don't you share one of the stories? You uh, told several amazing stories about the power they do wield, especially even toward powerful people in the industry and bloggers, anyone who dared to go against one simple part of their whole narrative. Well, I include, um, as you said, Russell, I include some of the book. I think they are powerful examples, but in the last, I'll say this, in the last 12 to 15 years, there is not a single example, not one, of, an, of a firearms industry member taking any position that is even one degree different from the most strident NRA policy and, and having their career live to tell about it, not a single one. And there are very notable, I'll, I'll even tell you uh, a story of one that's, that's not in the book that, that mm. because many, um, Dick Metcalf, who was a long time, wrote, was an editor, respected editor for many gun magazines um, that you would recognize, 37 years in the industry. He dared in 2000, I think this was about 2010, he dared to pen an article that warned gun folks that background checks were not a quote unquote infringement. They were simply something that reasonable gun owners should do so that we make sure, you know, he argued it was a pro-gun thing to do these things. Even after 37 years, even after hosting the largest industry events, literally at the range in his backyard in Illinois, literally he would have 50 people, the most important people in the industry for decades at, at, in his backyard. It took a grand total of about two days for him to be summarily executed in his career. He, was, he never again worked in the firearms industry simply because he penned an article that dared to, to say that background checks might not be an infringement at um, claiming claiming such only harmed gun owners. There are numerous examples like that. Some of them more lasting, um, they're in the book, but suffice it to say, um, very much like Trumpism, nobody is allowed to step out of line, even one half of 1%, right? You're either hundred percent or you're zero. Well, that approach was perfected, developed and perfected very well by the NRA and the firearms industry. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. But you managed to hang on to your job for a long time, despite the fact that you spoke out about a lot of this stuff and how did that happen well i did manage for a long time but i didn't actually speak out about anything to do with guns um ah. i i knew that my progressive activism which i became more and more ardent and outspoken about i would be allowed to exist and use the street cred that i'd built up in the firearms industry as long as i never touched that golden goose which was the gun issue so i never ever commented overtly in public about anything to do with gun policy, background checks, anything, because that, that is the sin that could not be forgiven. Um, I could dance right up to a dangerous line by um, commenting and advocating for conservation and, and environmental policy, which is, which is the thing that's, you know, most the, pol- the set of policies that are most near and dear to my heart, as is the case with many Montanans. Um, and I did that increasingly aggressively, but I never, I knew that the line existed in on firearms that I could never cross. I could whisper in cocktail parties. I could, you know, after a couple of whiskeys, I could say a thing to an executive or two and try to keep my voice down and try to keep below the radar, but never, there's not a single example of anybody that comments or takes a stance different than the NRA on anything to do with firearms policies and lives to tell about it. And yet there's plenty of examples in the book where people let you know that they agreed with you. <laughs> You know, which is pretty fascinating. Well, that all has evolved to, uh, again, the, the, <laughs> the similarities between our politics today and what I experienced in the gun industry are just, they're too eerily similar to not be linked. And I would challenge those of us on this call and, and anybody um, listening um, to this to note all of the folks who now 
believe things or who have con- people in your lives who you have seen convince themselves of things that a few years ago you would have been absolutely 100% convinced they would never ever believe. I saw that same thing happen in the firearms industry. People who who shared extreme amounts of of concern over folks that I mentioned being run out of their run out of business by simply voicing reasonable opinions that troubled them greatly. But after a few months, as Upton's, you know, I, I don't remember the exact Upton Sinclair quote, but very difficult to convince people to believe something when their paycheck relies on them not believing it. I'm butchering Sinclair's quote, but that's what happened over time. So now even most of those folks that did agree with the reasonable stance, they have convinced themselves that they don't agree with that reasonable stance now. Again, very much like Trumpism, the families, the workplaces, all of, all of our interactions where, I, gee, I can't believe that Uncle Bob is, believes this. Five years ago, he would have never done that. Well, you know, there are a hundred Uncle Bobs in the firearms industry that went through the same exact evolution. Mm. So, again, I want to follow up on that because a couple of times in the book, the parts that I found most compelling, you said something along the lines of the only way to truly understand this paradigm shift is to think of it as religious. Mm-hmm. It's like a religious mentality. Can you say a little more about that? Well, I quote um, former NRA president um, Warren Cassidy in the book, who, again, I'm going to butcher his quote um, a bit, but he said you would, you would get a lot better understanding of the NRA if you think of, if you think of us as one of the world's great religions. That's his quote. Is, it's very close to that. Yeah. And I think what I experienced is this conversion between from the NRA of my grandfather and my father and my early childhood that was this sort of camaraderie club of gun enthusiasts, but focusing on safety and not not a cortisol factory generating um, fear about the demise of the Western world, which it's now turned into. It now has been converted into something that's just, it's frightening. It's, and, and I think that the religious ferocity the, the sort of identity that is now branded to so many people has its roots in what the NRA did. It, it knew that if it could create fear, conspiracy theory, just this constant us versus them, 100% loyalty or none, never give an inch sort of mentality that it could eventually overtake and remake politics. And frankly, it did. So as an example of that, could you read that opening scene? Yeah. It felt like to me during the Trump administration that so many of the things that I worried about in the firearms industry were coming to pass worse and much faster than I feared. And by the time I um, lived through the scene that I'll read here in just a moment, I had already made up my mind to leave, but I was reinforced about the the need to do it and to speed it up because um, these things were coming to pass. So this is this is the way the book opens. You're an evil little bastard. Spit flies as the middle-aged man screams at my younger son, Badge. You know that? The man wears an American flag on his shirt and a pistol on his belt. He is enraged, the color in his face rising to match that of his Make America Great Again hat. Then the stranger pushes his finger into my son's chest. Badge is a slightly built boy of 12 with blonde hair and bright eyes, and he is terrified. But he straightens his back, looks at the man, and simply says, I can't breathe joining the protesting crowd, chanting those three words in unison over and over. I snap into defensive mode and force myself between them. If you say another word to my son or even think about touching him one more time, it'll be months before you're able to stand again. I snarl at the man, yelling at him through the crowd noise. He looks up at me and eases off. You with this kid, Maga Man barks. All he can do now is shake his head before sneering at me. Then you're an evil fucker too. This man and dozens like him had showed up with their guns to frighten people like Badge and me. I knew they called themselves Second Amendment patriots. And as I glare at the angry man, he storms off, presumably to find someone else to intimidate. I turn to Badge. You okay? He shakes with tears in his eyes, but he brushes it off and keeps chanting with everyone else. Of course he's okay. He gets that kind of courage from my wife, Sarah. Lost in the crowd, she hasn't even seen the brief confrontation. Yeah, that's a powerful scene. And, you know, I I know that there was some uh, clips from that rally that kind of made national news, like the the young African-American girl that was confronted by that guy. Um, 
so how much of that, how much did that incident push you toward the final decision? It reinforced yeah. that my decision that I had made was the right one and that my fears about this train careening off the tracks weren't just, you know, I guess as time went on and with through events like that, I became convinced that my fears and concerns about what the industry was doing and empowering were not um, unmerited, that, 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 that this, they're unwarranted. I, when January 6th happened, which was after many months after, because this was, that was June 6th of 2020. Mm. So when January 6th happened and we saw so much of the insurrection be centered in and around guns, you know, there were two things on the flags of those January 6th insurrectionists. There was Trump and Trump paraphernalia, MAGA paraphernalia, and there were, and there were guns. There weren't barbecue grills. There weren't Nike shoes. There weren't Toyota Tundras, all of these things that to dedicate their lives to or, or be enamored with. No, there were guns. There were come and take it flags. There were AR-15s. There were guns were the centerpiece for this insurrection. These events have only strengthened or, or reinforced that my decision to leave was the right one. Let me follow up with, uh, I guess, a couple of things that I thought of after reading your book. One, and I guess these are somehow related, what's the strategy for moving forward beyond this? And then concomitant with that, we keep hearing in the news about the NRA declaring bankruptcy and to hear NPR tell it they're on the ropes, but it sure doesn't feel that way. I'll take your second question first, and then we'll okay. get to the first one. Um, I think your feelings are square on the money, Aaron. Look, Trump did not win the, the 2020 election, and yet Trumpism is still alive and well, if any of us haven't noticed. NRA is the same thing. NRA may be weakened financially, although I believe that um, the sort of religious ferocity that they have fostered is going to keep them in existence and in power for a long time. And I liken this whole thing, both in Republican politics and on the gun side of things, to a campfire or a brush fire that's got out of control. It's easy for a bunch of people to build a, a small campfire in a dry area and think they could control it and stay warm during the evening. But if the wind comes up the next day and the thing takes off across the hills, I think we understand that you can no longer control that brush fire. And I think that's precisely what's happened with the NRA. And I think that's precisely what's happened with the craziness of the right-wing radicalization um, that we see. It started by a bunch of people who thought they could use this dangerous thing for a short term, and it's now out of control. And I don't think it matters a hill of beans for the next 10 or 15 or maybe more years about what financial state the NRA is in. That brush fire is burning. Second part of your question, I think that's obviously a much, I, I put it off because I think it's a much more difficult thing and it requires a, a hell of a lot more work and thought. All I can say is I have been very heartened in much of the response I have got to the book. Yes, I have been trolled. Yes, I have been threatened. Yes, my beheading is called for. Yes, my son's set up at night reading through the hundreds of pages of blogs, YouTube things and everything else that threatened to do various uh, interesting things to my body parts and in my life and in odd and um, gory ways. But I have also received an, a very heartening number of responses, letters, direct messages, written notes from people across the political spectrum, including on the right, that say things like, this is out of control. I can no longer be a part of this. I own guns. I'm a lifelong Republican. I may not agree with you on some things. Thank you for doing this. In other words, I think there's a lot of people that are tired, that gun owners, um, that are very tired of the radicalized voice holding the mic. And there's a lot of people that understand the danger in it and that there's a need for those more reasonable voices to stand up and take the mic back. That's when the political shift will start to happen. How that happens, I don't know. I hope that given that there has literally never been a gun voice from the gun industry who has said or confronted or admitted any of the things that I do in my book ever because of the police state that crushes, you know, the industry police state that crushes lives and careers and everything else 
That's why it's never happened. But I hope the simple fact of me standing up and stating what I what I hope people will understand is reality will at least start the conversation for reasonable people to move forward on this, maybe create a new organization, but at the very least, um, understand the ways in which we have been twisted as gun owners into fighting for this off the rails religious thing that many of us don't agree with. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. Tell us about when the idea of writing the book came about and how, how you went about getting it out, out into the world. So oddly enough, for a long time, as I lived through, I, I think you guys will agree, there's a few crazy stories in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll um, as I lived through that, many of us, many of, our co- many of the colleagues I worked with would, would often joke like, holy crap, that needs to go in a book or, oh my gosh, that's a Netflix series or, you know, just like almost daily. And so that in the back of my mind, I started to think about, there's a really interesting story here because nobody, everybody hears about guns every day. As you said, you know, NPR, you can't hardly go five minutes without something about guns being in the news, whether it's NRA or shootings or just guns in general, whatever, like, but, but nobody has ever pulled back the curtain to let everybody know what it's actually like inside the firearms industry. So just casually, I started to think about that I had a story to tell. Then a couple of years ago, as I got more serious about thinking about it, I realized that the real interesting part of this is to combine that reality with the reality of how the NRA has impacted our politics, how I played a role in that, and how it has changed our country. Because I think I think the nation needs to understand the forces that are shaking us around and writing it was hard <laughs> writing a book as you guys know is, is not an not an easy thing to do but through the evolution of that and with the help of and input of you know really important people in my life like my agent my editor and the, you know we honed it into the story that it is today so you sold it before you finished writing it yeah i sold it on proposal mm-hmm. uh, which for those people listening, um, that means you, it, it's a long process, but for a nonfiction book, you develop an outline, you have a couple writing samples that may be a chapter or two, you give some market intel about who might be the readers of this book, where the market might fall, why it might be interesting, and then you shop it to editors and publishers across the country to try to sell it. And then once you have an editor, once they buy it, then you have an editor and they work with you to give you some input and help you edit to finish the book. And the real work, my proposal was about 160 pages. So it's, it's not an insignificant document, but then the real work of writing the book really starts after that. Um, and that's why I sold the book. So was it, for, was it fairly easy to sell it? Nope. It was really okay. different. And that, <laughs> that was a surprising thing to me. And, and, um, I think that that actually goes to why, first I'll say I'm very thrilled that public affairs is my hashtag public affairs is my publisher and, you know, they're dedicated to publishing important books. That's, that's what important, especially important nonfiction books. And so I'm very thrilled that my editor, Colleen Lowry bought the book and that and public affairs is my publisher. It was not as easy to sell as you might've thought. And, and the reason is, is because a lot of people assume that they already know everything there is to know about guns and gun politics. I love them. I hate them. These people are good. These people are bad. Like, what else do I need to know? I've heard about this a million times on NPR and then New York times and blah, blah, blah. I don't need to know. Nobody needs to know anything else about guns. We know where the battle lines are. As you guys saw, I don't, my book is far more nuanced than that. It's not mm-hmm. about good and bad and black and white. It's actually about how a democracy must embrace responsibility and live in the gray area. Something that I think our democracy is now struggling mightily with. So it's a much more nuanced book than that. I would agree. And that's one of the things I really loved about it. So well done, sir. Thank you. It's a a great read. So can I ask, uh, what are your plans for the future? Do you have another book in the works? Are you going to go on a lecture tour? What do you, what's next for you this year? That's a good question. Some of the answer to your question, Aaron, is I don't know, but I want to do what I can 
to be an advocate for the things that I advocate for in the book, which is to try to come back to a place where we embrace responsibility, common sense, and decency. And I do believe that the gun issue, because I believe it is the genesis of our national division, I think that it, it just plays a much larger role in our society, especially for those of us who live in flyover country. I think it's very difficult to enumerate to coastal elites who may not understand the degree to which guns are a pervasive signal in, so in society and politics about certain stances or politics. I think that we have to break that down and embrace it with decency and common sense, just like we once did with all topics. And so I'm going to work to do that. People will take that, oh, well, you're going to work on gun control. No, I don't believe that things like insisting on background checks for all gun purchases is gun control. I believe those are reasonable actions that all citizens, especially gun owners, should embrace. Um, we have an immense responsibility in this society. I think gun owners have an outsized influence because of the, the tool, the thing that defines gun owners. It is a thing that can take a life in an instant. It, it is not a roll of toilet paper. It is, it is not a screwdriver. It is, it is a very serious thing. And so I think we have an outsized role and I aim to try to help bring guns and gun politics back to a reasonable place so that maybe the rest of our politics can follow that example. It's so amazing how common sense has just completely <laughs> disappeared from the conversation when, when it comes to that, isn't it? It's frightening. Again, I, you know, the thesis of the book is that this was all seated and perfected by the NRA. But if you look, you know, I had a college professor tell me once that if we, America is a great place and it has a statue of liberty on one coast, but it really needs a statue of responsibility on the other coast. Mm. You don't have liberties and freedoms without embracing responsibility. And I think so much of what we see now is this, this freedom run amok. It's not that freedoms aren't important. It's that, it's that we as a society have completely dismissed the need for responsibility at the same time. It's almost like I would not be surprised tomorrow if a movement arose to demand that we all be able to drive 120 miles an hour through school zones. Why? Because we can. And who cares if the kids die? And it's my, and it's my right to drive as fast as I want. Like that just that doesn't even sound shocking these days. And that all started with with the gun movement. Like, why can't I own everything all the time, as many rounds, whenever, take it whenever, no restrictions. I have no responsibility. That is not the way a functioning democracy is going to survive. It's period, end of story. It's it. We're, we're headed in a bad spot. So um, I, I aim to try to bring us back to center. Ryan, I've over the years argued with a lot of people about guns. And I've, you know, changed my views quite a lot. I think I told you how Herring once told me five or six years ago that uh, someday liberals would appreciate the Second Amendment. And I think I'm there. But I, I think in a lot of political issues, and your example of the school zone is, is a good one, I think one of the most difficult things with this issue is that unlike all the other political issues liberals and conservatives are divided over, this one is enshrined in the Bill of Rights. So there's not a Third Amendment that says you can drive as fast as you want. There's not a 28th Amendment that says you can you know, you're guaranteed the right to uh, not have a mask. But there is an amendment that says you are guaranteed the right to possess firearms. And I think that also has dovetailed with what you said about, you know, the freedom crowd. It's, it's enshrined there in the, in the Bill of Rights that makes it different from all these other issues. I guess I, I agree that that is a, a talking point and centerpiece. And here's where I'm going to disagree. The very first amendment, freedom of speech, none of us assume that that right is absolute, not a single one of us. Mm. Um, there are many, numerous, dozens, if not hundreds of restrictions that essentially mandate responsibility on freedom of speech, freedom of religion. I don't know if anybody understands this, but child sacrifice as uh, part of your religion is not accepted. <laughs> There's plenty of restrictions. Then, then we get to guns. We as gun owners already live with hundreds of restrictions and we accept them every day. And at the same time, many gun owners now say, 
We can have no restrictions. Why we? It's it's enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Really? Do you want um, every third grader to have a howitzer on the playground? No, no. I think we accept that that's a reasonable restriction. Does every person need an M1 Abrams tank and an A10 warthog just in case they need to strafe their neighbor? No. I think we respect that as a reasonable restriction. We have lived with very stringent restrictions on fully auto firearms since the Tommy gun days of Al Capone in 1934 and the National Firearms Act. We accept, and all gun owners that I know um, have accepted that as a reasonable restriction. We don't need fully auto firearms r- ruling the streets and encouraging gang war. Since 1934, that's been an accepted part of restrictions. So for gun owners now to say this is enshrined and we should have no restrictions, well, their whole life is a conundrum because we live with a myriad of them because we need to live in a, live in a functioning society. And I think that's just another, as much as Hal and I are, are very good friends and I respect him and he's a great thinker and, and beautiful writer and fantastic person to have around the campfire, maybe the best. I think that we miss that we already accept so many restrictions on our rights because that's the way a democracy must work. Yeah, Freedoms run amok. No, thank you. That's great. Yeah, it goes back to the common sense thing. So are you going to stay in uh, Kalispell? <laughs> well, I don't know. I might get run out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we plan to. Our, our kids are in school here, and, and um, we, we've made a life here and love Montana. Uh, we'll never leave Montana, as the, as the famous McLean line goes. And I don't think I'll ever leave Montana, brother. But um, yeah, we're, we're, we have no plans to leave. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ryan. This has been awesome. Yeah, this was really great. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you much. Um, will you say a few words just to conclude? When does the book actually come out? Yeah, so the book is uh, will be published uh, on October 19th. Um, you can pre-order it uh, through my website, which is ryanbusseyauthor.com, or it's for sale uh, just about anywhere you buy books, including through your local bookstore, which I, I love uh, local bookstores. And uh, it will be available as an audiobook, and you'll have to listen to me read the <laughs> I was selected to read the audiobook. So I um, appreciate you guys having me on and, and being thoughtful about the discussion today. Thanks That's great. Thank you. As much as I love this book, I wonder if it will have any effect. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think it's going to. Re- rile a lot of people up already who are pretty sympathetic but i also feel like it's going to completely rile up the other side yeah and it almost feels like whenever anybody does try to do something about the obvious problem it ends up ratcheting the gun lobby even further to the right and they gain more power it's Mm. you know and i think the best example of that is sandy hook Mm. oh yeah you know, not only, did, not only did we not enact some kind of gun legislation after Sandy Hook when all those kids died, but it actually strengthened the, the gun lobby. When well, he yeah. talks about this, yeah. It brought out the crazies that were trying to create this narrative that these, some of these shootings are staged even. You, you weren't hearing that before then. So yeah, it's it's. I think you're right. It's uh, that was one of the crystallizing moments of the whole conspiracy theory driven right wing view of the world that, you know, just demonize it as made up and fake. And then of course that parallels Trump and his and you know everything Trump did pretty much was based on conspiracy theory. Right. Yeah, they're doing they're staging these just so they can take our guns away (laughs) you know Uh, one other thing i think that's really important to mention since we are here in montana and he he talks about this in the book a little bit but in our conversation with him he alluded to it you know more directly and that is the the sort of scam that the the right-wing republicans in montana have run on the average gun owner um convincing them that they're somehow for hunting and fishing rights, but really they're all about privatizing land, right. denying access and turning our public lands into private game ranches. I mean, that is happening in real time right now 
And if you talk to anybody who's got their finger on the pulse of this, like Ryan or Hal Herring, you know, they'll tell you that it's happening right before our eyes, that people are voting for people that they think will protect their gun rights and their access to hunting and fishing. And the opposite is true. They're doing the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, just look at the governor. I mean, he tried to deny access to his own land. They're trying and to turn it into a playground for their own. Friends. He's a convicted poacher. Right. Yeah. Oh, we could go on and on about that. And, uh, you know, at the risk of, you know, having this episode come off as partisan, I don't think any of this is not true. Exactly. You know, facts tend to, <laughs> facts tend to fall on the liberal side. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We can't help that. Especially with this issue. So, yeah, I, I hope, you know, all indications show that it's going to be huge and uh, it will be very interesting to see what the impact of that is, how, how that plays out. We'll be following that closely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's unusual for us in that it's a nonfiction book. It's uh, right. I wouldn't call it autobiographical. It's not, it's kind of a memoir, but it's really sort of an expose. Of yeah. Very, you know, very personal. He's, he makes it clear that this really hits close to home and affected his family. You know, he told us oh, in yeah. conversation that he's had death threats and, Right. Yeah. And the opening scene where the guy's screaming at his 12 year old kid is really powerful. I mean, it, it just shows the complete lack of empathy on the other side where this guy is yelling at a 12 year old. This big, huge guy is yelling at a which is on, you know, and that's on YouTube. So there's another example of what I'm talking about. You know, even yep. though this sounds very partisan, um, you know, this is objective stuff that you can go look up on YouTube. Yep. And I think it, it bears mentioning that when I talked to Ryan, when I first read the book, my first thought was, aren't you afraid you're going to get sued mm. <laughs> because of the stuff you're saying? And he mm. just said, uh, you know, truth is a defense to slander yeah. and defamation. He said, I'm not saying anything that's not true. Right. And exactly. I really admire that. I think that's, we need a lot more of that. Yeah. But it was a risk for sure. I mean, he took a big risk right in this book. Right. Yeah. And so did his publisher. Yeah. Yeah. So two uh, great books, highly recommended. Gunfight by Ryan Bussey. And uh, we pointed them north by Teddy Blue Abbott. Yes, we, we recommend and so our next episode, I'm looking forward to this next one, too. We've got Corey Williamson, who's a really fine poet from Helena. And I, I'm drawing a blank on the name of her collection, but we're going to talk about one of her poetry collections, along with uh, Stephen Ambrose's. She, uh, she suggested Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage, which is the Lewis and Clark uh, book. And that's an amazing book. Yeah, I, I, I really in, enjoyed that book. And I'm a huge fan of Corey Williamson. Yeah, she's a great poet. So join us next time for Breakfast in Montana. And thanks a lot for tuning in. And thanks again for all the people who have donated to the ongoing crowdfunding effort. And we will have a list to read probably at the next episode. Absolutely. Thank you.